0: Chapter Three, Part One of The Battle of Life. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Battle of Life by Charles Dickens. Chapter Three, Part The Third. The world had grown six years older since that night of the return. It was a warm autumn afternoon, and there had been heavy rain. The sun burst suddenly from among the clouds, and the old battleground, sparkling brilliantly and cheerfully at sight of it in one green place, flashed a responsive welcome there, which spread along the countryside as if a joyful beacon had been lighted up and answered from a thousand stations. How beautiful the landscape, kindling in the light, and that luxuriant influence passing on like a celestial presence, brightening everything. The wood, a sombre mass before revealed its varied tints of yellow, green, brown, red, its different forms of trees, with raindrops glittering on their leaves and twinkling as they fell. The verdant meadowland, bright and glowing, seemed as if it had been blind a minute since and now had found a sense of sight wherewith to look up at the shining sky. Cornfields, hedgerows, fences, homesteads, and clustered roofs the steeple of the church, the stream, the water-mill, all sprang out of the gloomy darkness, smiling. Birds sang sweetly, flowers raised their drooping heads, fresh scents arose from the invigorated ground, the blue expanse above extended and diffused itself. Already the sun's slanting rays pierced mortally the sullen bank of cloud that lingered in its flight, and a rainbow, spirit of all the colours that adorned the earth and sky, spanned the whole arch with its triumphant glory. At such a time, one little roadside inn, snugly sheltered behind a great elm-tree with a rare seat for idlers encircling its capacious bowl, addressed a cheerful front towards the traveller, as a house of entertainment ought, and tempted him with many mute but significant assurances of a comfortable welcome. The ruddy sign-board perched up in the tree, with its golden letters winking in the sun, ogled the passer-by, from among the green leaves, like a jolly face, and promised good cheer. The horse-trough, full of clear, fresh water, and the ground below it sprinkled with droppings of fragrant hay, made every horse that passed prick up his ears. The crimson curtains in the lower rooms, and the pure white hangings in the little bed-chambers above, beckoned, "'Come in!' with every breath of air." Upon the bright green shutters there were golden legends about beer and ale and neat wines and good beds, and an affecting picture of a brown jug frothing over at the top. Upon the window-sills were flowering plants in bright red pots, which made a lively show against the white front of the house, and in the darkness of the doorway there were streaks of light, which glanced off from the surfaces of bottles and tankards. On the doorstep appeared a proper figure of a landlord, too. For, though he was a short man, he was round and broad, and stood with his hands in his pockets, and his legs just wide enough apart to express a mind at rest upon the subject of the cellar, and an easy confidence, too calm and virtuous to become a swagger, in the general resources of the inn. The superabundant moisture, trickling from everything after the late rain, set him off well. Nothing near him was thirsty. Certain top-heavy dahlias, looking over the palings of his neat, well-ordered garden, had swilled as much as they could carry, perhaps a trifle more, and may have been the worse for liquor. But the sweetbriar, roses, wallflowers, the plants at the windows, and the leaves on the old tree were in the beaming state of moderate company that had taken no more than was wholesome for them, and had served to develop their best qualities sprinkling dewy drops about them on the ground, they seemed profuse of innocent and sparkling mirth, that did good where it lighted, softening neglected corners which the steady rain could seldom reach, and hurting nothing. This village inn had assumed, on being established, an uncommon sign. It was called the Nutmeg Greater. And underneath that household word was inscribed, up in the tree, on the same flaming board, and in the like golden characters, by Benjamin Britton. At a second glance, and on a more minute examination of his face, you might have known that it was no other than Benjamin Britton himself who stood in the doorway. Reasonably changed by time, but for the better, a very comfortable host indeed. "'Mrs. B,' said Mr. Britton, looking down the road, "'it's rather late. It's tea-time.' As there was no Mrs. Britton coming, he strolled leisurely out into the road and looked up at the house, very much to his satisfaction. "'It's just the sort of house,' said Benjamin. "'I should wish to stop at, if I didn't keep it.' Then he strolled towards the garden paling, and took a look at the dahlias. They looked over at him, with a helpless drowsy hanging of their heads, which bobbed again as the heavy drops of wet dripped off them. You must be looked after, said Benjamin. Memorandum. Not to forget to tell her so. She's a long time coming. Mr. Britton's better half seemed to be by so very much his better half, that his own moiety of himself was utterly cast away and helpless without her. She hadn't much to do, I think, said Ben. There were a few little matters of business after market, but not many. Ah!— "'Here we are at last!' A chaise-cart, driven by a boy, came clattering along the road, and seated in it, in a chair, with a large well-saturated umbrella spread out to dry behind her, was the plump figure of a matronly woman, with her bare arms folded across a basket which she carried on her knee, several other baskets and parcels lying crowded around her, and a certain bright good-nature in her face and contented awkwardness in her manner.' As she jogged to and fro with the motion of her carriage, which smacked of old times even in the distance. Upon her nearer approach, this relish of bygone days was not diminished, and when the cart stopped at the Nutmeg Grater door, a pair of shoes, alighting from it, slipped nimbly through Mr. Britton's open arms and came down with a substantial weight upon the pathway, which shoes could hardly have belonged to anyone but Clemency Newcombe. In fact, they did belong to her, and she stood in them, and a rosy, comfortable-looking soul she was, with as much soap on her glossy face as in times of yore, but with whole elbows now, that had grown quite dimpled in her improved condition. "'You're late, Clemmy,' said Mr. Britton. "'Why, you see, Ben, I've had a deal to do.' She replied, looking busily after the safe removal into the house of all the packages and baskets. Eight, nine, ten. Where's eleven? Oh, my basket's eleven. It's all right. Put the horse up, Harry, and if he coughs again, give him a warm mash to night. Eight, nine, ten. Why, where's eleven? Oh, forgot. It's all right. How's the children, Ben? "'Hearty, Clemmy, hearty!' "'Bless their precious faces,' said Mrs. Britton, unbonneting her own round countenance, for she and her husband were by this time in the bar, and smoothing her hair with her open hands. "'Give us a kiss, old man,' Mr. Britton promptly complied. "'I think,' said Mrs. Britton, applying herself to her pockets and drawing forth an immense bulk of thin books and crumpled papers, a very kennel of dog's ears. "'I've done everything. Bills all settled. Turnips sold. Brewer's account looked into and paid. bacco pipes ordered. Seventeen pound four paid into the bank. Dr. Heathfield's charge for little Clem. You'll guess what that is. Dr. Heathfield won't take nothing again, Ben.' "'I thought he wouldn't,' returned Ben. "'No,' HE SAYS WHATEVER FAMILY YOU WAS TO HAVE, BEN, HE'D NEVER PUT YOU TO THE COST OF A HALF-PENNY. NOT IF YOU WAS TO HAVE TWENTY. Mr. Britton's face assumed a serious expression, and he looked hard at the wall. "'Ain't it kind of him?' said Clemency. "'Very,' returned Mr. Britton. "'It's a sort of kindness that I wouldn't presume upon, on any account.' "'No,' retorted Clemency. "'Of course not.' "'Then there's the pony. He fetched eight pound, too. And that ain't bad, is it?' "'It's very good,' said Ben. "'I'm glad you're pleased,' exclaimed his wife. "'I thought you would be, and I think that's all. And so no more at present from yours, etc. See, Britain! Ha, <laughs> ha, There! Take all the papers and lock up. Oh, wait a minute. Here's a printed bill to stick on the wall.' "'Wet from the printers! How nice it smells!' "'What's this?' said Ben, looking over the document. "'I don't know,' replied his wife. "'I haven't read a word of it.' "'To be sold by auction,' read the host of the nutmeg-grater, "'unless previously disposed of by private contract.' "'They always put that,' said Clemency. "'Yes, but they don't always put this.' he returned, look here, mansion, etc., offices, etc., shrubberies, etc., ring-fence, etc., messieurs snitchy and crags, etc., ornamental portion of the unencumbered freehold property of Michael Warden, Esquire, intending to continue to reside abroad. Intending to continue to reside abroad? repeated Clemency. "'Here it is,' said Britton. "'Look!' "'And it was only this very day that I heard it whispered at the old house, that better and plainer news had been half-promised of her soon,' said Clemency, shaking her head sorrowfully, and patting her elbows as if the recollection of old times unconsciously awakened her old habits. "'Dear, dear, dear, there'll be heavy hearts, Ben, yonder.' Mr. Britton heaved a sigh and shook his head, and said he couldn't make it out. He had left off trying long ago. With that remark he applied himself to putting up the bill just inside the bar window. Clemency, after meditating in silence for a few moments, roused herself, cleared her thoughtful brow, and bustled off to look after the children. Though the host of the nutmeg-grater had a lively regard for his good wife, it was of the old patronising kind, and she amused him mightily. Nothing would have astonished him so much, as to have known for certain from any third party, that it was she who managed the whole house, and made him, by her plain straightforward thrift, good humour, honesty, and industry, a thriving man. So easy it is, in any degree of life, as the world very often finds it, to take those cheerful natures that never assert their merit, At their own modest valuation, and to conceive a flippant liking of people for their outward oddities and eccentricities, whose innate worth, if we would look so far, might make us blush in the comparison. It was comfortable to Mr. Britton to think of his own condescension in having married Clemency. She was a perpetual testimony to him of the goodness of his heart, and the kindness of his disposition and he felt that her being an excellent wife was an illustration of the old precept that virtue is its own reward. He had finished wafering up the bill, and had locked the vouchers for her day's proceedings in the cupboard, chuckling all the time over her capacity for business, when, returning with the news that the two Master Britons were playing in the coach-house under the superintendence of one Betsy, and that little Clem was sleeping like a picture, she sat down to tea, which had awaited her arrival, on a little table. It was a very neat little bar, with the usual display of bottles and glasses, a sedate clock, right to the minute, it was half past five, everything in its place, and everything furbished and polished up to the very utmost. It's the first time I've sat down quietly to day, I declare, said Mrs. Britton, taking a long breath as if she had sat down for the night, but getting up again immediately to hand her husband his tea, and cut him his bread and butter. "'How that bill does set me thinking of old times!' "'Ah!' said Mr. Britton, handling his saucer like an oyster, and disposing of its contents on the same principle. "'That same Mr. Michael Warden?' said Clemency, shaking her head at the notice of sale. "'Lost me my old place!' "'And got you your husband?' said Mr. Britton. "'Well, so he did,' retorted Clemency, "'and many thanks to him.' "'Man's the creature of habit,' said Mr. Britton, surveying her over his saucer. "'I had somehow got used to you, Clem, "'and I found I shouldn't be able to get on without you. "'So we went and got made man and wife. (laughs) "'Ha, ha, ha, We! Who'd have thought it?' Who indeed? cried Clemency. It was very good of you, Ben. No, 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 replied Mr Britton, with an air of self denial. Nothing worth mentioning? Oh yes it was, Ben, said his wife, with great simplicity. I'm sure I think so, and am very much obliged to you. Ah looking again at the bill, when she was known to be gone and out of reach dear girl i couldn't help telling for her sake quite as much as theirs what i knew could i you told it anyhow observed her husband and dr jedler pursued clemency putting down her teacup and looking thoughtfully at the bill in his grief and passion turned me out of house and home I never have been so glad of anything in all my life as that I didn't say an angry word to him, and hadn't any angry feeling towards him even then, for he repented that truly afterwards. How often he has sat in this room and told me over and over again he was sorry for it! The last time only yesterday, when you were out! How often he has sat in this room and talked to me, hour after hour, about one thing and another, in which he may believe to be interested, but only for the sake of the days that are gone by, and because he knows she used to like me, Ben. "'Why, how did you ever come to catch a glimpse of that, Clem?' asked her husband, astonished that she should have a distinct perception of a truth which had only dimly suggested itself to his inquiring mind. "'I don't know, I'm sure,' said Clemency, blowing her tea to cool it. Bless you! I couldn't tell you! If you was to offer me a reward of a hundred pound! He might have pursued this metaphysical subject, but for her catching a glimpse of a substantial fact behind him, in the shape of a gentleman attired in mourning, and cloaked and booted like a rider on horseback, who stood at the bar door. He seemed attentive to their conversation, and not at all impatient to interrupt it. Clemency hastily arose at this sight— Mr. Britton also rose and saluted the guest. Will you please to walk upstairs, sir? There's a very nice room upstairs, sir.' "'Thank you,' said the stranger, looking earnestly at Mr. Britton's wife. "'May I come in here?' "'Oh, surely, if you like, sir,' returned Clemency, admitting him. "'What would you please to want, sir?' The bill had caught his eye, and he was reading it. "'Excellent property, that, sir,' observed Mr. Britton. He made no answer, but, turning round, when he had finished reading, looked at Clemency with the same observant curiosity as before. "'You were asking me,' he said, still looking at her. "'What you would please to take, sir,' answered Clemency, stealing a glance at him in return. "'If you will let me have a draught of ale,' he said, moving to a table by the window, and will let me have it here. Without being any interruption to your meal, I shall be much obliged to you.' He sat down as he spoke, without any further parley, and looked out at the prospect. He was an easy, well-knit figure of a man in the prime of life. His face, much browned by the sun, was shaded by a quantity of dark hair, and he wore a moustache. His beer being set before him, he filled out a glass and drank good humouredly to the house, adding, as he put the tumbler down again, It's a new house, is it not? Not particularly new, sir, replied Mr. Britton. Between five and six years old, said Clemency, speaking very distinctly. I think I heard you mention Dr. Jeddler's name as I came in, inquired the stranger. "'That bill reminds me of him, for I happen to know something of that story, by hearsay, and through certain connections of mine. Is the old man living?' "'Yes, he's living, sir,' said Clemency. "'Much changed?' "'Since when, sir?' returned Clemency, with remarkable emphasis and expression. "'Since his daughter went away.' "'Yes,' "'He's greatly changed since then,' said Clemency. "'He's grey and old, and hasn't the same way with him at all. But I think he's happy now. He has taken on with his sister since then, and goes to see her very often. That did him good directly. At first he was sadly broken down, and it was enough to make one's heart bleed to see him wandering about, railing at the world.' But a great change for the better came over him after a year or two, and then he began to talk about his lost daughter, and to praise her, I and the world too, and was never tired of saying, with the tears in his poor eyes, how beautiful and good she was. He had forgiven her then. That was about the same time as Miss Grace's marriage. Britain, you remember? Mr. Britton remembered very well." The sister is married, then, returned the stranger. He paused for some time before he asked, To whom? Clemency narrowly escaped oversetting the tea board in her emotion at this question. Did you never hear? she said. I should like to hear, he replied, as he filled his glass again and raised it to his lips. Ah, it would be a long story if it was properly told said Clemency, resting her chin on the palm of her left hand, and supporting that elbow on her right hand, as she shook her head, and looked back through the intervening years as if she were looking at a fire. "'It would be a long story, I'm sure.' "'But told as a short one,' suggested the stranger. "'Told as a short one,' repeated Clemency, in the same thoughtful tone, and without any apparent reference to him— or consciousness of having auditors. What would there be to tell? That they grieved together, and remembered her together, like a person dead? That they were so tender of her, never would reproach her, called her back to one another as she used to be, and found excuses for her? Everyone knows that. I'm sure I do. No one better, added Clemency, wiping her eyes with her hand. And so— suggested the stranger. "'And so,' said Clemency, taking him up mechanically, and without any change in her attitude or manner, "'they at last were married. They were married on her birthday. It comes round again to-morrow. Very quiet, very humble-like, but very happy. Mr. Alfred said, one night when they were walking in the orchard, "'Grace, shall our wedding-day be Marian's birthday?' And it was. And they have lived happily together, said the stranger. "I," said Clemency, no two people ever more so. They have had no sorrow but this. She raised her head as with a sudden attention to the circumstances under which she was recalling these events, and looked quickly at the stranger. Seeing that his face was turned towards the window, and that he seemed intent upon the prospect, She made some eager signs to her husband and pointed to the bill, and moved her mouth as if she were repeating with great energy one word or phrase to him over and over again. As she uttered no sound, and as her dumb motions, like most of her gestures, were of a very extraordinary kind, this unintelligible conduct reduced Mr. Britton to the confines of despair. He stared at the table, at the stranger, at the spoons, at his wife— followed her pantomime with looks of deep amazement and perplexity asked in the same language was it property in danger was it he in danger was it she answered her signals with other signals expressive of the deepest distress and confusion followed the motions of her lips guessed half aloud milk and water monthly warning mice and walnuts and couldn't approach her meaning Clemency gave it up at last, as a hopeless attempt, and, moving her chair by very slow degrees a little nearer to the stranger, sat with her eyes apparently cast down, but glancing sharply at him now and then, waiting until he should ask some other question. She had not to wait long, for he said presently, "'And what is the after-history of the young lady, who went away? They know it, I suppose?' Clemency shook her head. "'I've heard—' she said that dr jedler is thought to know more of it than he tells miss grace has had letters from her sister saying that she was well and happy and made much happier by her being married to mr alfred and has written letters back but there's a mystery about her life and fortunes altogether which nothing has cleared up to this hour and which she faltered here and stopped and which repeated the stranger Which only one other person, I believe, could explain," said Clemency, drawing her breath quickly. "Who may that be?" asked the stranger. "Mr. Michael Warden," answered Clemency, almost in a shriek, at once conveying to her husband what she would have had him understand before, and letting Michael Warden know that he was recognized. "You remember me, sir," said Clemency, trembling with emotion. "'I saw just now you did. You remember me? That night in the garden. I was with her.' "'Yes, you were,' he said. "'Yes, sir,' returned Clemency. "'Yes, to be sure. This is my husband, if you please. Ben, my dear Ben, run to Miss Grace, run to Mr. Alfred, run somewhere, Ben, bring somebody here directly.' "'Stay!' said Michael Warden, quietly interposing himself between the door and Britain. What would you do? Let them know that you are here, sir, answered Clemency, clapping her hands in sheer agitation. Let them know that they may hear of her, from your own lips. Let them know that she is not quite lost to them, but that she will come home again yet, to bless her father and her loving sister, even her old servant, even me— She struck herself upon the breast with both hands, with a sight of her sweet face! Run, Ben, run! And still she pressed him on towards the door, and still Mr. Warden stood before it, with his hands stretched out, not angrily, but sorrowfully. "'Or perhaps,' said Clemency, running past her husband, and catching in her emotion at Mr. Warden's cloak, "'perhaps she's here now, perhaps she's close by.' "'I think from your manner she is. "'Let me see her, sir, if you please. "'I waited on her when she was a little child. "'I saw her grow to be the pride of all this place. "'I knew her when she was Mr. Alfred's promised wife. "'I tried to warn her when you tempted her away. "'I know what her old home was when she was like the soul of it, "'and how it changed when she was gone and lost. "'Let me speak to her, if you please.' He gazed at her with compassion, not unmixed with wonder, but he made no gesture of assent. "'I don't think she can know,' pursued Clemency. "'How truly they forgive her! How they love her! What joy it would be to them, to see her once more! She may be timorous of going home. Perhaps if she sees me, it may give her new heart. Only tell me truly, Mr. Warden, is she with you?' She is not, he answered, shaking his head. This answer, and his manner, and his black dress, and his coming back so quietly, and his announced intention of continuing to live abroad, explained it all. Marion was dead. He didn't contradict her. Yes, she was dead. Clemency sat down, hid her face upon the table, and cried. At that moment a grey-headed old gentleman came running in, quite out of breath, and panting so much that his voice was scarcely to be recognised as the voice of Mr. Snitchey. "'Good Heaven, Mr. Warden!' said the lawyer, taking him aside. "'What wind is blown!' He was so blown himself that he couldn't get on any further, until after a pause, when he added feebly, "'You here!' "'An ill wind, I'm afraid,' he answered. "'If you could have heard what is just passed, how I have been besought and entreated to perform impossibilities, what confusion and affliction I carry with me!' "'I can guess it all. But why did you ever come here, my good sir?' retorted Snitchy. "'Come? How should I know who kept the house? When I sent my servant on to you, I strolled in here because the place was new to me.' and I had a natural curiosity in everything new and old in these old scenes, and it was outside the town. I wanted to communicate with you first, before appearing there. I wanted to know what people would say to me. I see, by your manner, that you can tell me. If it were not for your confounded caution, I should have been possessed of everything long ago. Our caution, returned the lawyer, speaking for Self and Crags, "'Deceased!' Here Mr. Snitchey, glancing at his hat-band, shook his head. "'How can you reasonably blame us, Mr. Warden? It was understood between us that the subject was never to be renewed, and that it wasn't a subject on which grave and sober men like us—I made a note of your observations at the time—could interfere. Our caution, too. When Mr. Craggs, sir, went down to his respected grave in the full belief—' "'I had given a solemn promise of silence until I should return, whenever that might be,' interrupted Mr. Warden. "'And I have kept it.' "'Well, sir, and I repeat it,' returned Mr. Snitchey. "'We were bound to silence, too. We were bound to silence in our duty towards ourselves, and in our duty towards a variety of clients, you among them, who were as close as wax.' It was not our place to make inquiries of you on such a delicate subject. I had my suspicion, sir, but it is not six months since I have known the truth, and been assured that you lost her.' "'By whom?' inquired his client. "'By Dr. Jedler himself, sir, who at last reposed that confidence in me voluntarily. He, and only he, has known the whole truth, years and years.' "'And you know it.' said his client. "'I do, sir,' replied Snitchy. "'And I have also reason to know that it will be broken to her sister to-morrow evening. They have given her that promise. In the meantime, perhaps you'll give me the honour of your company at my house, being unexpected at your own. But not to run the chance of any more such difficulties as you have had here, in case you should be recognised, though you are a good deal changed.' I think I might have passed you myself, Mr. Warden. We had better dine here, and walk on in the evening. It's a very good place to dine at, Mr. Warden. Your own property, by the by. Self and Craggs, deceased, took a chop here sometimes, and had it very comfortably served. Mr. Craggs, sir," said Snitchey, shutting his eyes tight for an instant, and opening them again, was struck off the roll of life too soon." Heaven forgive me for not condoling with you, returned Michael Warden, passing his hand across his forehead, but I am like a man in a dream at present. I seem to want my wits. Mr. Craggs, yes. I am very sorry we have lost Mr. Craggs. But he looked at Clemency as he said it and seemed to sympathize with Ben consoling her. Mr. Craggs, sir, observed Snitchey, didn't find life, I regret to say, as easy to have and to hold as his theory made it out, or he would have been among us now. It's a great loss to me. He was my right arm, my right leg, my right ear, my right eye, was Mr. Craggs? I am paralytic without him. He bequeathed his share of the business to Mrs. Craggs, her executors, administrators, and assigns. His name remains in the firm to this hour." I try, in a childish sort of a way, to make believe sometimes he's alive. You may observe that I speak for self and crags. Deceased, sir, deceased," said the tender-hearted attorney, waving his pocket-handkerchief. Michael Warden, who had still been observant of clemency, turned to Mr. Snitchey when he ceased to speak, and whispered in his ear. "'Ah, poor thing,' said Snitchey, shaking his head. Yes. She was always very faithful to Marion. She was always very fond of her. Pretty Marion. Poor Marion. Cheer up, mistress. You are married now, you know, Clemency. Clemency only sighed and shook her head. Well, well, wait till to-morrow, said the lawyer kindly. To-morrow can't bring back the dead to life, mister, said Clemency, sobbing. "'No, it can't do that, or it would bring back Mr. Craggs, Deceased,' returned the lawyer. "'But it may bring some soothing circumstances. It may bring some comfort. Wait till to-morrow.' So Clemency, shaking his proffered hand, said she would, and Britton, who had been terribly cast down at sight of his despondent wife, which was like the business hanging its head, said that was right.' And Mr. Snitchey and Michael Warden went upstairs, and there they were soon engaged in a conversation so cautiously conducted, that no murmur of it was audible above the clatter of plates and dishes, the hissing of the frying-pan, the bubbling of saucepans, the low monotonous waltzing of the jack, with a dreadful click every now and then as if it had met with some mortal accident to its head, in a fit of giddiness, and all the other preparations in the kitchen for their dinner." End of part one of chapter three.